If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It may be that the dear who is dear is Anne Boleyn, or it may not be. Um, he, he, you know, he, he'll write himself and then deny it. That was Susan Brigden, author of Thomas Wyatt, The Heart's Forest. From the point of view of, of, of a democracy, it is crucially important that there is you know, constant debate, constant engagement with not just contemporary issues, but with what's happened in the past. And that was Christopher Duggan, author of Fascist Voices. These two historians have both just been awarded the prestigious Wolfson History Prize. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. And we have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, Google Play and Kindle Fire. For details of our digital formats, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. This week's podcast is a Wolfson History Prize special. First awarded in 1972, this accolade recognises the best accessible history works of the year and has gone on to become one of the most prestigious awards of its kind. Past winners include the likes of Anthony Beaver, Mary Beard and Ian Kershaw. On Tuesday, two new names were added to the roster, Christopher Duggan and Susan Brigden, who have scooped the latest awards for their books Fascist Voices and Thomas Wyatt, The Heart's Forest. Fascist Voices by Professor Christopher Duggan of the University of Reading tells the story of Mussolini's Italy through the voices of those who lived through the era. By analysing letters, diaries and police files, Duggan reveals a surprising level of enthusiasm for the fascist regime. In Thomas Wyatt, The Heart's Forest, Oxford historian Susan Brigden studies the life and work of the Tudor poet Thomas Wyatt, who was intimately involved with many of the key players of Henry VIII's reign. Famously, he was said to have been a lover of Anne Boleyn, and this is one of the mysteries of Wyatt's life that Brigden seeks to tackle in her biography. 
I met up with Christopher and Susan recently to discuss their respective works and to discover the secrets of writing award-winning popular history. Before we hear the conversations, here is a quick word from Paul Ramsbottom, Chief Executive of the Wolfson Foundation. Well, the intention is that it will shine a light on two books um, that are exceptional works of history and that have a real resonance with a wider audience. Um, so the intention from our perspective is really to, 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 to highlight um, that type of work. So, um, so we hope that it comes as a real morale boost for the winners, uh, as an encouragement to other uh, people writing uh, for a wider audience, albeit very much within a, a scholarly context. And I guess at, you know, at a more parochial level, we hope clearly that it will have an impact on the, the sales of the books, that it will encourage people to go and to read these, these wonderful winners. I'm, I'm always conscious that the, the timing comes out at the beginning of summer holiday period. And so I have these rather nice images of people heading off to beaches in the Mediterranean with a copy of each book under each arm. That was Paul Ramsbottom. And now on to our panel discussion. I should mention that some of the topics we covered were suggested by Richard Evans, a member of the judging panel. You've both been awarded a prize for writing history that the general public can enjoy. What, what is it you think that makes a piece of history accessible? Well, um, I think it's got to have people in it. It's got to have stories. And I guess there are, there are certain subject areas that, that, that resonate with, with people. I mean... The Tudors obviously has huge um, popular appeal at the moment through uh, novels, through films, and um, obviously through you know, works like, like Susan's book on, on Thomas Wyatt. Um, so I think you've got to try and choose a, a subject area. Um, mine was on Italian fascism, and whereas Italian fascism perhaps has not had you know, a huge amount of, of, of popular coverage, obviously Nazism and fascism generally does. So I think it's a question of trying to, to find a general area that's going to, to resonate and then have an interesting angle on it and one that normally has um, some kind of personal dimension, whether it's through biography or in the case of my book, um, using diaries of ordinary people to, to engage the general reader as well as to, to shed light on, on a period. Yes, and in Christopher's book, the voices, the fascist voices are what lead you in. And I think as historians, we're trying to, you know, evoke the past and trying to take, uh, trying to imaginatively recreate the past and to take our readers into this world where, which is known or less known to them and to introduce them to characters and to ask the question, were they like us? And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes really not. Yeah, that's true. And I think you're, you're inviting your, your reader to, in a sense, to put yourself in the shoes of your characters and say, as, as you're right to say, Susan, I mean, you know, would I have acted differently? What would I have done? Um, how much is this a different world from the world that I've experienced? How much is it similar? And very often it, it's, it is, there are elements of similarity, but elements of difference. But I think it is, as Susan says, this transporting the reader to a different place, a different time, and to try and reconstruct, using one's imagination as well as one's sources, um, a different world, but a different world in which people can probably see themselves as well as see differences. I think that that's important. And, you know, books that have, history books have, have, have quite a success, can often be on quite 
you know, remote countries or remote periods. There have been very successful books looking at, you know, China and the Far East in, in sort of earlier periods or whatever. So it's this question, I think, of trying to recreate as fully as possible the emotional, moral, intellectual texture of a period. And that can, and, and, and when you've got people there, you can draw your reader in, I think, and hopefully get them emotionally engaged in, in the subject. And I think we're trying to, there is such a thing as a historian's truth. We're really trying to mm. discover what happened. And we, we're seeing history, I suppose, often sequentially. We're trying, we're, 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 I mean, history is a, is a story and it, and to present it thus is not to do, um, to traduce the past, but to make it real. And to do that, and to present a story, you've got to be writing in a way that uh, one sentence follows from another and that you entice your reader to read on. It's, it's uh, I mean, the best historians have always uh, tried, to, tried to do that. So do you feel successful popular history works more because of the way it's written than, say, the topic that's been chosen or perhaps the sources that have been used? Is it really the writing that really makes a work of history come alive? Yes, I think so, because, I mean, you could re- write a rebar- a, um, an article of rebarbative pedantry on the most interesting historical subject, uh, the rise of Mussolini or the death of Anne Boleyn. Um, but you could also write something fascinating about some, something that wasn't, you know, in, it, in itself... Uh, appealing. I mean, you know, to tell the story of a Netsuke like um, uh, um, Edmund de Waal does isn't yeah. isn't an obvious uh, isn't an obvious ploy, but um, it you know, it's a, it's a story of extraordinary attraction. And it's that different angle, as you said, the, the hair of the amber eyes was just so unusual that you got in through the next week. And it, it opened up a whole world of you know, late 19th century France and you know, all the issues that um, came up with the, the Jewish question late 19th century and early 20th century as well. So it's, it's having this sort of door, this interesting door that, that, that um, opens. And I mean, you, you asked if it's the writing. Um, in a sense, you know, the prose has got to be as engaging and vivid as possible, but I think probably even more important is is just having this this rather different angle and being able to open up this 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 extraordinary world. And sometimes just the you know the, the, the range of sources can itself be intriguing. I mean, one thing that that, that you know I was was in awe of in in, in, in Susan's book is is just the you know how in what detail you could reconstruct events in fifteen twenty seven or whatever it is through. You know, traces, and that in itself was fascinating. Just thinking that, my God, you know, four hundred, you know, five hundred years ago, we can, you know, we can reconstruct on a daily basis um, a horse ride going across through France to to back back to London. It's really quite exciting. So there's something about the sources themselves that can be quite intriguing, I think. And in case of my book, I was using diaries, but also secret police reports and so on. I guess that must have a certain frisson for for the reader as well, which can make it attractive. But you also, I mean, there's the kind of history where you continue a debate within the academy. Mm. So you say, Duggan says, but I say, and then, you know, and somebody else says. And that, in a way, is to, is, is, I think that belongs to the historical journal, and that's for the world of the academy. For the, for history to be accessible, I think you have to have 
two parallel stories in a way. There's the story above the line, which is after all what Gibbon did in The Decline and Fall um, of, of the text for his readers. And then below the line are the footnotes and those of uh, the um, historians or the scholars who really want to follow the tracks and see the, the proofs. Um, but if once you start introducing the sources very palpably into the text or the names of your fellow scholars upon whom you rely tremendously, then you break the spell in a way and it's no longer, you're no longer simply in the 16th century mm. or in the 21st century. So that's why you, you choose as you're writing something. You always find your own, your, your voice that tries to fit the story that you're telling. I, remember, I mean, Gibbon describes the voice that he has to find to the, the historian of the Roma, of the decline mm. and fall of the Roman Empire has to find. And all of us, you know, not, not um, to compare ourselves to Gibbon, but we have to find a voice that suits the story we're telling, I suppose. Do you two, when you're writing, do you have a picture of the reader in mind at all? Yes, I, mean, I, I do. I, have, I imagine my friends or I imagine uh, my undergraduates or the, uh, because after all, we're teachers before we're, I mean, that's, that's how we spend most of our yes. time. Yes. The writing is done in vacations or in time stolen from other things that we should be doing. Um, so it, it's... Uh, the, I, I imagine the undergraduates, particularly ones who study you know, particular courses with me. Mm. Yes, I, th I think you always have um, readers in mind, and sometimes a little bit schizophrenic because you're aware of you know, your academic colleagues hovering over your shoulder, and there, as Susan said, you make sure that your footnotes indicate that you, you know, do know your sources and you have read the latest articles or latest books on your subject. Um, but then you've got you know, the, the, the so-called general reader perhaps hovering over your shoulder, and then, um, yes, students. I mean, my last book, not the one I've, this, this one, uh, Fascist Voices, but I was in slightly sort of caught between wanting to engage with general reader, somebody who might be going to, to Italy on holiday for a couple of weeks and wants to have general history of Italy, but at the same time thinking of, um, undergraduate students and what they might like from something with slightly more of a textbook feel. So in the case of that book, which I published five, six years ago, um, I sort of hovered between a sort of general narrative that might engage the general reader and something that might be of use to, to undergraduates as well. So yes, you're always aware of your, of your, your audience, I think. Um, and um, yes, yeah, certainly with, with this book, Fascist Voices, um, you know, I was conscious of, of, of addressing you know, a major area of historical debate among professional historians, the degree to which there was consensus or support for the fascist regime in Italy, more broadly, support for, for fascism in Europe. Yet at the same time, wanting, partly because it's, it's, it's not, you know, Italian fascism is not so well known as, 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 say, Nazism, to try and draw in a bigger public and say, look, there's a lot that we can learn from from Italy. You know, please read this book and you know start thinking about about fascist Italy and don't just focus all the time on on Nazi Germany. There's a lot to be learned from other countries as well. Are there any potential pitfalls when writing this kind of popular history that would, is there ever a danger of sacrificing kind of the academic integrity or or not really sort of dealing with the scholarship properly? Is it hard to balance the two two sides to the work? 
I think if you've got a publisher that lets you have as many footnotes as you like, mm. then you can yeah. have two books, really. You can have your scholarly book below the line, and then you can have your um, your book that, pe- that, that isn't so rebarbative, I suppose, that people might want to read and find... Um, you know, fight, enter uh, the world that you're painting for them. But I suppose um, that, I, I mean, the, 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 it, within the academy, people might despise you for writing in a more popular way. And, well, you know, that's their problem as far as I'm concerned, because I think historians have got a duty, really, to uh, make important subjects known. I mean, I wouldn't make great claims for writing about Thomas Wyatt as, as containing, you know, huge truths for um, in modern politics. But to read Christopher Duggan's book and to think about the possibilities of, you know, the resurgence of right-wing groups within Europe or to think about the silences there are in Italy about um, the past is, you know, is, 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 to, is, is really to see that duty, I think. Yeah, I think um, I mean, the issue of whether you, you feel compromised, I mean, it, it is a balancing act all the time. And I think, as, but as Susan says, you, you, you can use things like the footnote or footnotes or in my case I you know in the introduction I, I tried to 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 address the issues which the book touched on in terms of academic debates you know, the extent to which fascism was was not a political religion or whatever so you can make clear that you're you know you're conscious of these things but I think as, as Susan says I mean the important thing in a way with um, so many topics is is to try and generate debate I mean you know as I came stories, we know there are no definitive answers. There are always debates, and the debates keep on and on and on. But the important thing is to, to keep those debates alive and to keep people questioning, thinking, challenging, and so on. I think one thing I wanted to do in, in, in my book is to say, well, this is what the evidence suggests. I can't tell you definitively the degree to which you know, 40, 45 million Italians really bought into fascism or really supported Mussolini. There's no way you can come up objectively with an answer in that. Here's some evidence. Here are diaries, here are private letters, here are secret police reports, which indicate that a lot of people were emotionally really engaged with fascism, um, really engaged certainly with Mussolini. Um, I can't tell you exactly what that says about levels of consent or support. But let's at least start thinking about it, discussing it, um, and get over silences. Because one thing, as Susan said, there's so many areas of, of history. And this goes, I guess, for, for areas of British history, as, um, but certainly for large areas of um, you know, European history of the 20th century, where you know, there has been a lot of silence. I mean, I'm just finishing Paul Preston's great book on the, the Spanish Holocaust. And um, you know, clearly, there has been a huge amount of silence in Spain about exactly, you know, the, the level of brutality and killings in 1936 to 37 in Spain. I mean, Paul gives a figure of close on 200,000 people killed. But clearly the way he's writing this book is, is to say, well, look, we've got to confront this because it is not being confronted. And what we've got in Spain is a rather benign image of Franco, somebody who restored order 
ultimately 1960s gave Spain the sort of foundations for its economic recovery, though it's a little bit more suspect now. Um, but, you know, there's been silence. And I think one of the things that, that, that you know, Susan and I and other historians want to reach a broader public would like to do is just to, you know, to open up areas that have not been fully discussed, fully thought about, and just get people talking. There are no final answers, but there is debate. And that's what we want to encourage. Do you, do you both feel that it's important that, that academic historians like yourself get involved in the popular history market and don't, don't just leave it to the kind of these sort of amateur historians and historical novelists and people like that, that you, that you have a voice? Because there is a lot of popular history being written mm. by non-academics. Is it important to have you, people like you in the mix as well? Well, I suppose the Tudor period is the one that, that, that you know, is a period of great glamour and destiny and lots of people want to write about it. And it also, it has a historical novel of genius writing about it, which is Hilary Mantel. And I think that her powers of imagination and her sort of searing intelligence are just extraordinary. And I think actually that she wrote the best two pages that have been written or will be written about Thomas Wyatt. And I'm glad that I read um, Bring Up the Bodies after I'd finished my book. <laughs> but it's still true that we you know, historians who are out there on the front line in the archives need to be writing our histories too. So partly, so, I mean, it, it gives them more material. But um, our truths are different from theirs in a way. We're, um, I mean, I... I think that Hilary Mantel is looking for and finding historical truth, but in a different way than I am. I, I, um, I revere her. I don't revere people who are writing a kind of what I might call faction, which is halfway between true history and fiction, which is a kind of easy, facile uh, enterprise, which... Um, is a kind of historical pap that doesn't have to do with truth or hard thinking. I think that's absolutely true, and I, I agree with Susan on that. I think historical novels are one thing, and there's a kind of truth you can get from those, which is, is, is wonderful. I think there is a danger with historical books that claim to be serious history, but which are not written from a standpoint or with a rigour that, that professional historians would would approve of and I think they can be dangerous because the the reader will pick those up at a bookshop at airport whatever it is and you know the blurb on the book will say you know the truth about I don't know Mussolini's execution exposed whatever it is they'll read it say my god this is history this is the truth and yet you know as historians we're acutely aware that this is just often absolute nonsense and certainly in the case of um, my subject on you know, Italian fascism or indeed Italian history, modern town history in general, I'm aware, particularly perhaps in, in, in Italy, there's a whole you know, huge industry of writings by people who are not professional historians, but who write books which claim to be history, which have huge readership, and they really worry me. Um, I just mentioned the, you know, the execution of, of Mussolini. There are so many books backed up then by so-called documentaries on television in Italy, which claim that you know, Mussolini was assassinating the orders of Winston Churchill or whatever it is, you know, without any serious evidence for this. And those kind of works can do, I think, very serious damage. And I think we have a duty as historians to try and counter that by being absolutely clear about 
sources showing people um, how you approach truth, in inverted commas, I mean, as far as one can establish truth, but by being as faithful as possible to the sources. And with a degree of accessibility that allows you then, hopefully, to try and counter some of the more dangerous and corrosive material that there is out there. There are some historians, and I suppose people in many fields, who feel a little bit snobby about the idea of popular history. But do you think that what you're saying sort of shows the importance of academics engaging with popular history? Because otherwise the public will be at the mercy of amateurs and charlatans. And so for academic, for academic historians to just be in their ivory tower could be quite dangerous to the public understanding overall. Well, I think there is a place for really quite difficult history just written in a very um, um, bleak way conducted in uh, professional journals. Um, And some historians are writing the sorts of history that fits best in in that kind of um, um, medium. But for for those of us who are you know, writing about very exciting periods. It doesn't seem to me that there's any problem about writing for a general audience. I mean, historians, you know, words are our um, our weapon in a way. And you know, if you can't write appealingly, then your sword is forever unsheathed. Your argument is not properly made. History. Um, need, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's a very complicated uh, matter often, but it needn't be explained in um, terms of obfuscation. You can write complex truths in a appealing way, I think. Mm, I think that's it's very important. I think it's also um, something that British historiography has been very good at for many decades, indeed many centuries. And I, and I, you know, I think of the situation in Italy, which is obviously the country that I work on primarily. And in Italy, it is very, very rare indeed to find a professional historian who can engage or indeed wants to engage with the general public. There is a, a very strong sense, I find, in Italy that if you are accessible, then sometime, somehow you're not a serious historian. Um, which may be one reason why, and I'm very grateful for this, that, that British historians do get widely translated in Italy um, and can reach a relatively broad public. But I think it is is, hugely important um, that that historians can reach um, broad publics. I mean, I want to sound sort of too too sort of pompous on this, but from the point of view of, of, of a democracy, it is crucially important that there is you know, constant debate, constant engagement with not just contemporary issues, but with what's happened in the past, particularly with, you know, things like uh, fascism, that, that, you know, we are open, able to discuss these. Whereas I see in, in, in Italy that, 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 you know, that the inability very often of historians to engage uh, with the general public, broader public on serious issues like, you know, fascism, Mussolini, and so on, leaves, as I said earlier, the, the, the way open to, to pseudo-historians or to sensationalist or sensationalizing documentary makers to present a very distorted picture of, of the past, which can have very dangerous implications. Um, so I think, you know, historians, we do have 
I mean, duty sounds a little bit, a little bit sort of over serious, but I think, you know, there is a, there's a real role within democracy as part of the broader debate to make sure that as, you know, wider public as possible is brought into discussions about the past as well as the present. It's part of the uh, wider debate about how history should be taught in schools, after all, and uh, it's a matter of great controversy. And um, I think there are politicians and people who are um, in charge of education who who really do recognise that without a knowledge of history that you're forever a child, that you are condemned to repeat the errors of the past if you don't know the past. I know, I think that, I mean, perhaps it does sound rather portentous, but I think that his, his, historians, you know, have a, do have a, a, a humane inf- influence, especially in a, you know, in a liberal democracy. I think in America too, there's a tradition of writing history in a, in a, popular way which matters and of course the audience there is enormous mm. now I, I realize you've both written on very sort of different subjects clearly but do you see any parallels between your two books <laughs> um well both engage with with um obviously real people um and try to to bring a life alive the world they 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 lived in i think one thing that that um you know, I found very striking about Susan's book was the the um, sort of geographical breadth. And what I really enjoyed about, amongst many other things, is the way that you know, the, the Reformation in England was brought into a European context, and the way that you know the Court of Henry VIII and people like Wyatt were part of this broader European culture, um, and also European politics, the extent to which. Um, you know, Henry VIII was desperately trying to to lever himself into a position of influence in in Europe generally, and ultimately, I suppose, rather failing, which I guess is, you know, a sign of things to come for the next four centuries or so, um, in terms of Britain's relation with relations with Europe, um, and I think that that European dimension to 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 Susan's book and the fact that my book is 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 about Italy is does reflect, I think, a very very important strand in, in British historiography that, that there is you know, such a strong tradition in this country of books being written about other countries. One just looks back through the, the list of um, you know, prize winners for the Wolfson Prize um, in the last uh, 40 or so years. Huge number of these books have been about non-British subjects, um, you know, books that, that deal with you know, America or, or aspects of European countries or the Far East or India, whatever it is. And I think that is something that is very, very significant about British historiography. Something that may be a little bit under threat. I mean, a lot of debate about this the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years and about the problem of, of languages. But, you know, Susan had to, to look at archives in Spain and Italy, Germany. Um, without language skills, we're going to, to lose that ability. And, and the danger is we might lose something that's very distinctive about British historiography. And I, I suppose one of the things that links the books too is uh, the sense of people, the voices of people who are making very hard moral choices in times of great uncertainty and danger and, you know, looking for leadership or lo- looking for a, um, 
you know, a sense of a, a politics to be trusted and a sense of, you know, a, um, a, a, a nation whose um, who, who's, who's path is, is uh, you know, there, there are certain paths to be taken. Mm. So those things might, might link them as well. Something that I was thinking in a very, clearly quite a loose sense is you've, in both senses, you've got people trying to deal with quite a sort of difficult regime. You've got Henry VIII's obviously very hard to gauge how he's going to react to things and also quite a dangerous man to cross. And similarly with Mussolini, if you, if you fell on the wrong side of him, which was quite easy to do, you could come a cropper quite easily. So there is, are there any parallels between the Tudor court and the fascist court, so to speak? Or is that stretching it too far? Well, I think um, um, the, the, the pr- probably are in terms of, I mean, both are fairly sort of authoritarian regimes. And I think it's, it's interesting to see how people respond emotionally, psychologically to these kind of regimes. And one thing that really struck me looking at um, the diaries of ordinary people in fascist Italy or their letters is the, the willingness to suspend critical judgment about the leader um, and the desire to want to believe that the leader is somebody who is on your side, who's going to help you to be good and so on. And, and the amount of emotional and psychological investment in that and the way in which you, you, know, you put aside critical judgment. I was very struck with, with Susan's book when looking at Cromwell's fall in, in, in 1540, how you know, it seems so brutally unjust. And yet Cromwell doesn't say, say to Henry, how, how dare you do this? He says, I'm sorry, I betrayed you or whatever. I mean, and, you know, I find in the case of, of Mussolini how extraordinary it is that even highly intelligent people who can see that the racial laws, the alliance with, with Germany and the entry into the war in 1940 is you know, inhumane, unjust, wrong. Yet at the same time, they do not want to lose their faith in Mussolini. Um, I mean, one, I'm very struck by an extraordinary diary of a of a very, very intelligent student, um, physics student from the University of, of Padova, who, you know, one moment can say, you know, the, why is most introducing the racial laws? They're iniquitous. Why are my professors from university being sacked just because they're Jews? The next minute she can record in her diary her sense of exhilaration at going to hear Mussolini give a speech and be proud of herself that she still has faith in the Duce. Um, so it, it's, it's something very... I think both books say something very curious about how people deal with power, particularly strong power, and what you do. Cycle. I mean, we we all imagine that faced with horrendous choices like in the Third Reich or whatever, we'd all say, "No, we wouldn't." You know, send the Jews to gas chambers. But you become aware that when you're faced with power, that you play very curious games emotionally, psychologically, with yourself, in order perhaps just to keep on living and to, to, to think that you're making the right choices. And I suppose even at the court of a tyrant, you are still hoping that by your counsel, you might try and uh, speak truth to power. But of course, that's much harder to do than to talk about. And my, I, was, I suppose my book is about people who are quite close to this 
who are very close to this problem. They're making these moral choices. They're at court and trying to make sure that they come, you know, they come out as clean as they went in. But if that that doesn't happen, um, that they're they're tainted. Everybody who lives. Uh, who countenances those regimes is 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 tainted by them and in both books you have well particularly in yours but I suppose also in yours Christopher you have a central character who is still quite an elusive character do you feel that you're able to get to the bottom of them finally after writing these books I, I think sometimes in my dark moments, I've thought that there's a sort of Wyatt-shaped hole in the middle of my book and that I could evoke the world um, around him. I could hold up his poetry as a kind of mirror of his times, but that he was evading me. They said at the time of Wyatt that... Um, Ah, he speaks fine words until he's more sure of you. And I think that sometimes I felt I was getting the fine words. And But he, this is a man who, in his letter to his son, a very um, um, revealing letter to his son, at a time perhaps when he thought he might not see him again, talks, talks to his son Thomas about gathering himself, to have a, a gathered self, to know himself. And if, but... With, with Thomas Wyatt the Elder, I found so many selves. There were, you know, there was Wyatt the Christian Stoic, and then Wyatt the Murderer, and then Wyatt the sort of trolling Wyatt who'd write courtly verse, and Wyatt who was also the paraphrast of the seven penitential psalms. And he's a courtier who says that he's not going to flatter, and then we find him flattering. And so he's, 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 he's a figure of such complexity that he was always elusive. And I think I, if I left him still elusive, then I didn't too much traduce him. Um, but there's, there's, uh, uh, so, so I, I present these selves. But that, I guess, is the reality of all human beings. And again, not sound too too pompous, yeah, but the, yeah. there are so many different layers. And I think, you know, one thing I found with doing researching Mussolini, but also I think um, looking at the responses of ordinary people to Mussolini. I mean, everyone is 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 multi layered, and and you know, I, I said at one point I think that I could well imagine somebody in Italy writing an effusive letter to Mussolini saying, Duce, I believe in you, you are my God on earth, I love you, etc., etc. And a few hours later in a bar over a drink with a colleague saying, oh, Mussolini's an idiot, isn't he, and so on and so forth. I mean, we, we, you know, we all do that um, in various ways. We're, we're rather sort of contradictory and complex. And certainly in the case of Mussolini, um, you know, he's somebody who uh, was playing so many different roles in the end in, in a way that I don't think he could disengage the actor from from the real self. He was somebody who, you know, saw himself always, um, whether in front of large crowds or in front of individuals, as playing playing roles. I mean, even with I mean, we, we recently got access to the diaries of his most long-standing and, and famous honoratorious mistress, Claretta Petacci, uh, who record in huge details exactly what Mussolini said on a day-to-day basis to her. But you get this strong impression there that he's, he is playing a part as much as any other time. He is, you know, first of all, he's sort of 25, 30 years older than her and playing the sort of, you know, the, 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 the great man in front of her and boasting and showing off and so on and so forth. But that, in the end, is as much part of him a real part of him, as any central inner truth, if you like. I mean, Mussolini, as I say, like 
so many people is just playing lots and lots of, of different roles. And um, I think that's something that, that um, you know, works like Susan's or perhaps, perhaps mine as well brings out, that in the end we are all very, very complex creatures and we play different roles and, and often contradict ourselves. And there's, I think there's some interesting things in, in the sources that you both use. I mean, just in Christopher's case, you've got these letters and diaries that it's always hard to know how much these really represent someone's true feelings. And then with Thomas White, you've got all his poetry. But again, it's how much is that the real Wyatt and how much is that an image he wants to project of himself? Even when these things are written in private, it's still, is it possible to get a feeling for how accurate or how true these things really are? Or is it just an impossible quest? It's very, very difficult. And one point I made about using diaries is, is, you know, why are people writing diaries? What kind of persona are they trying to project? Because, I mean, sometimes people, you know, will write a diary, um, just to offload their feelings. In a way, that is, that's the most sort of authentic and raw indication of what they're actually thinking or feeling. But very often people write diaries for other reasons. They may be thinking of posterity. They may be thinking of actually having published, um, Lots of diaries I, I came across for for soldiers in the Second World War or uh, soldiers serving in Ethiopia in 35, 36. They were keeping them for their girlfriend or their wife back home to show what a good soldier or good fascist they'd been. So there's you know, often a, a, you know, a reason why they're writing it. And you've just simply got to to think when you're reading a diary, you know, what is you know, what is the motive for this diary? And therefore, what kind of image is the person trying to project of himself or herself? But in the end, if someone's trying to to, and I found this when looking at diaries, for example, of, of school teachers. I was thinking, well, you know, these are you know, so you know, apparently such just you know, statements about how what a wonderful teacher they are and how good they are as, as fascists. Um, and maybe that they're sort of keeping these diaries, which might possibly be shown to a, you know, a head teacher or somebody to show how well they behave. But in a sense, that is as much part of their real person, the fact they want to project themselves as good fascists. Um, so you can say, well, even if they didn't necessarily sign up 100% for the kind of things they're saying about Muslim or fascism, the fact they want to project that to a superior or whatever it is says quite a lot about their commitment to the regime, even if it doesn't actually reflect necessarily their full inner feelings. So, but, you know, I think you've you know, just got to be very critical of your sources. And I guess with Susan, the same with poetry. You've just got to sort of think, you know, why is yes. someone writing to John Points or not writing John Points, whatever it is. <laughs> yes. I mean, poets are alchemists. They can, they, they can do anything. They range in the zodiac of their wit. That's what Philip Sidney says. But they, um, and a poet's truth is not the same as the truth for the rest of us. There are all sorts of um, constraints and um, um, inspirations for a poet that that uh, m- make the source quite different from anything else. A, a, a poet like Wyatt is constrained by his own nature. He's constrained by his times. He's writing at a time when um, under the Treason Act, words are now treason. So his life nearly ends on the difference, on a distinction between syllables. And he says that um, the distinction between a difference of syllables maketh a great difference. But he's also thinking of form, and it's it's form that's his um, his his inspiration, and he's imitating 
great poets, especially Petrarch. So he must write with the compression to to follow the form of the sonnet. So and he's 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 trying to imitate he's imitating Horace or he's imitating uh, Alemanni who's uh, imitating Ariosto imitating Horace you've got something the poem is a palimpsest and what you what you can never do is to try and ransack it for a certain time a certain place a certain person that really is to Introduce the, the the poet. So it may be that the hind that he describes in Who So List to Hunt, it may be that the deer who is deer is Anne Boleyn, or it may not be. Um, he he you know he he'll write himself and then deny it. So and he'll speak and keep silent, and you have to follow him through all those silences until you 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 find a voice or you you find a moment where you can be more certain of him i suppose um but you've got to you've got to track him um and and be cautious and stealthy and how far did you feel you had to be true to the original sources because something that richard actually wanted wanted to ask you susan was about keeping maintaining the original spellings of Thomas White, because he wondered whether about the choice you made between whether to make it, I suppose, a bit easier for a modern reader, but then also want to keep to the original. Why did you decide to stick with the original spellings in the end? Well, that that was really difficult because I knew that um, if I didn't put Wyatt in his original spelling, he sounds different if you put him in English, uh, in in our modern English. You don't you you don't get quite the plays on words if you put punctuation in you you don't find the truth sort of hovering between the lines it's um uh, it 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 that was one of the hardest decisions but this is a man who is going to go to the block on the difference between whether he said the king is left out of the cart's ass or cast out of the cast ass. So when he says that it, it maketh a difference to the truth, a syllable, he really knows and he means it. And so I didn't think that I could be one of those editors who'd edited Wyatt and put in a syllable here to make the rhyme smoother or to put him into modern English. I think once you once you get the hang of it, once you start reading him aloud as he would have been, then it becomes much easier. And I made all sorts of um, rather compromised decisions, I suppose, so because Wyatt's friends are not in their original orthography and Wyatt's diplomatic letters are um, not um, in his 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 writing and his spelling. Um, but the poetry, I, I had to stay firm, I think. But it, it, it was difficult. But it worked. I think it worked very, very well. I, I thought it was an excellent choice to make because, you know, Gain is going at this point about taking your reader back to an earlier period which is different and yet which has close resemblances in many, many ways. And I think you know, the, the archaic English rather does that. You get you, you you think, well, this is England. It is my country, whatever it is, but it is slightly different. And and also there's just a sort of 
I find it sort of fascinating to try and sort of you know, to, to have to read and reread the poems to actually get used to it. So it became like a sort of not quite a crossword puzzle, but something, but but intriguing and part of the excitement of of the book, getting back into the world of the 16th century to have to slightly you know wrestle to begin with at least with this rather um, unfamiliar English. So I think it worked very well. And it would have been alienating, I think, to have translated the 16th century English into modern English, because then you've had the, the modern voice intruding into the recreation, which is you know, what the book's trying to do, recreation of that world of the 16th century. Um, you know, in my case, I had, I had no choice but to, 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 to translate, but to translate, uh, you know, the aim for me was to, to translate in a way that reflected the, 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 the tone of the Italian as much as, as possible. Um, so, But some of your diaries were almost impossible to penetrate, weren't they? I can't remember mm. the name of the man who wrote on his Olivetti oh, yes. word by <laughs> word, separating every word with a semicolon. Yes, yes. And he was only marginally literate, really, but he wanted his story to be yes. told. I mean, that was very... And, you know, night after night, he was writing yes. his, his account that, that, the, that the truth be... Told that that is difficult when you've got someone who's writing. In the case of um, uh, Vincenzo Rabito, you mentioned, um, he's writing in a very curious town in, in basically Sicilian dialect, and um, uh, it was going to be almost impossible in English to 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 bring across that that sort of you know, distance from 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 modern Italian. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the case of diaries of children or whatever, you you try. A little bit to, to to replicate the sort of the sort of childish feel of the writing, um, but um, but the challenging was very different from 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 one that, that, that Susan faced. I think I mean, no choice but I think to to translate. But I think in a way you were making it easier 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 for us than and and doing us a tremendous favour, but. I mean, even now, if you go to Naples, mm. the language of the streets is not something that the rest, you know, even those who can speak a bit of Italian can understand. And so each of those voices that you were presenting for us was speaking a language that would be hardly recognized as, as standard Italian, because standard mm. Italian is the creation of the television, I suppose, isn't it, in part? Well, yes. I mean, I think it's only in the 1970s the majority of the Italian population spoke Italian as their, their first language as opposed to, to, to dialect. So, yes, a lot of these people who were, who were writing diaries or, or letters were struggling with, with, with Italian. So, um, yes, I mean, it's important to sort of um, be able to, to, to bring out their voices, and often these are voices which, which in Italy as well, are not easy to be heard precisely because, as you suggest, the, the language is, is not always one that, that Montalans would be very familiar with. And something else that I suppose applies to both your books is they both take on some quite big questions of their period, I suppose. You've got the whole question of Anne Boleyn and Thomas Wyatt, whether or not they, they were a couple, and then, I know this is quite different, but in your book, Christopher, you've got did the Italian people really support Mussolini? These are two quite big topics that a lot of other people have addressed. Do you feel that your books have settled these matters now or is it still up for debate? Well, I think um, uh, I haven't settled really the matter of Anne Boleyn and Thomas Wyatt. I think that, that there's, a, there's a will among 
anybody who sees their fascination now and anybody then who saw their fascination they were they were um they left other people behind at that court or they people saw their difference there was a sort of inevitability that these people of a kind of you know glamour and destiny would get together and there you know we can imagine them romping in the kent countryside in their childhood i think it wasn't like that there was so much to prevent them actually um, having, you know, a romance that was consummated by its marriage, um, you know, the, the the court constantly on the watch for this kind of thing. That it's very, it's very it's hard to tell. It's it 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 seems slightly prurient to tell. Of course, it does matter because Wyatt is a great poet because Anne Boleyn is a queen and she's the mother of a greater queen and so these are not matters without moment but I think uh, after 500 years there are things that you can't tell it'd be wiser not to speculate in the case of, of fascism the, you know the, the debates will go on on and on about about this and we've seen the case of the Third Reich, Nazi Germany, how sort of pendulum swings backwards and forwards between people saying that there was a huge level of you know, of support, you know, Hitler's winning executions and so on. Then the pendulum swings back again towards saying that, well, there was a huge amount of coercion. We must emphasize the coercion and the extent to which people were forced to, to, to conform and to obey. And then more recently, I think, the pendulum swinging back again in the case of Germany to saying, well... Actually, the distinction between you know good Germans, bad Nazis is not one that we can make, and in fact, you know many more people than we perhaps imagined really bought into the broader agenda of Nazism, even if they didn't actually support the Nazi party. Um, in the case of Italy, um, as I say, I don't think there's again to to, to to be a definitive answer on this one, but I think what I what I hope I've opened up is some new avenues for for thinking about fascism. Um, the relationship with the Catholic Church, I think, is one that has not been uh, faced up to for various, perhaps understandable reasons, as squarely as it should have been. But I'm very conscious of the extent to which, right from the start, that fascism's authority in Italy owed a huge amount to the really quite strong support, almost from the very beginning, of senior clergy in Italy. Not just in 1929, when the conciliation took place between the fascist state and the Vatican, but long before that. And, you know, if you think that for the Catholic Church, liberalism, almost as much as socialism, was an enemy to be fought, you begin to understand the extent to which fascism, for all its faults as far as the Catholic Church concerned with its paganism and violence, could nevertheless seem a much better bet, both than socialism and also liberalism. And it, that gave fascism a huge, huge advantage. And of course, the liberal state had never had the formal backing of the Catholic Church. So that's something to be really emphasised. And I think, again, you know, thinking of, of Paul Preston's book on, on, on Spain, but also thinking about um, fascism in South America, um, it's something I think we need to, to to think about rather more than we have done, and you know, the, the 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 importance of, of of the relationship between fascism and backing of the, the the Catholic Church. The other thing I think I want to try and do in in the book was to place the period 1922 to 45 in. A broad context, because it's very easy just to sort of isolate the period and say it is all about, you know, class or whatever it is. But if you think that most of the people who um, you know, are alive in 1922 
would have their memories shaped by the 30, 40, 50 years that gone before, then you can only understand fascism in the context of all the disappointments, the frustrations, the the you know the anxieties that have gone before disappointments about the First World War, the the dislike of liberalism, the corruption of parliament, the fragmentation in parliament, all these things helped then shape how people approach fascism. And even if they didn't like aspects of Mussolini or the fascist party, nevertheless, they could really embrace the kind of hopes, the aspirations that, that fascism seemed to be engendering in terms of national regeneration, respect finally in Europe, um, having a united nation, the sense, you know, the past being fragmented, now we're one people with a common destiny. All these things, I think, help to, to give people a sense that, that they could support fascism, even if they didn't like aspects, the corruption of the party, aspects of Mussolini. So it's, I think what I hope to do is, is to try and open the debate out and, and suggest more broadly why these regimes, fascism in Italy or perhaps, you know, Nazism in Germany or Franco in Spain, might be attractive. You, know, you can't settle the debate. All you can do is say raise questions. The, the most uh, chilling part of the book, though, of your book is the epilogue, I think, mm-hmm. where um, the entries that are made... Um, uh, uh, where is it? Um, Predapio, where Mussolini is buried, yes. Um, Mussolini's mausoleum, where people are still, you know, writing in 2010 to the Duce and thinking of the great man and the they don't exactly mention the third Rome now but they talk they they pine for him hmm. there's a lot of nostalgia I think I mean again you can't quantify this but it's it's true that, that you're getting dozens sometimes hundreds and occasionally on the, the big anniversaries a thousand plus people writing signing the, the, the commemoration book in front of Mussolini's tomb and writing quite often lengthy inscriptions of, of praise to him. Um, and um, yes, it, it, it says something about the way in which if the past is not confronted squarely, how it is very easy for myths um, to, to remain powerful. Um, in the case of um, you know, Italy today, I mean, we're just seeing at the moment the, the utter mess that's been you know, taking place in Italy since the elections in February, inability to form a government, recently the failure to even elect a new president. They've had to go back to uh, poor old Giorgio Napolitano, who the last thing he wanted, age 86 and 87, or 87 and 88, whatever, he's become president yet again, but he's had to. And, you know, there's this widespread feeling in Italy that, and it, it is reminiscent of what was happening back in you know, nearly 100 years ago, that this is a system that's not working, it's, it's parties that are self-serving, it's fragmented, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's very easy in those circumstances for people to think, oh, well, things were better when we had, you know, one strong man who had a, you know, was able to unite us as a nation, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, how easy it is for myths to be resurrected. And, and in that context, how easy it is for people to bat away any criticism and to say that the people who have criticised Mussolini, what's happened quite a lot in Italy the last 20 years, is to argue that anti-fascism and the criticisms of fascism Mussolini have been inspired by the communists. But you can then say, well, the communists are discredited, therefore anti-fascism discredited. And so you, where you, can, you can sort of bat away any criticisms in order to protect what you want, i.e. a sort of you know, mythical image of a great man who might offer hope. And I suppose there also is, with the Tudor period, uh, quite strong myths developed, don't they, in sort of the popular imagination about them. I mean, I guess they might not be as dangerous as they are with 
the fascist period, but it, it still is an issue for historians that they do need to confront some of these myths. Yes, um, I think that the the hold of uh, the Tudor monarchs, especially Henry VIII and Elizabeth, on the popular imagination is extraordinary, and um, the um, a, a kind of mythic quality surrounding them. I think, I mean, fortunately, Henry now is seen more as a monster than as a sort of founding father. But he, I mean, here here is a man who. Um, destroyed so much um, uh, and there are those who really it's hard to think of the Reformation I think as other than a tragedy in some ways for those who um, lived through it there are gains and losses I suppose but um, in the way that it was done um, uh, the pain remains Um, Elizabeth who was Quite controversial at her time, in her time, I suppose. I mean, remains as a as a you know it would have it would be hard to gainsay this, the 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 real achievement of her reign. That was Christopher Duggan and Susan Brigden in conversation. I'd like to thank Paul Ramsbottom and the Wolfson Foundation for lending us their premises to record the interviews. And if you'd like to know more about the Wolfson History Prize, please visit wolfson.org.uk forward slash history hyphen prize. Both Christopher and Susan's books are, of course, on sale now. Fascist Voices, An Intimate History of Mussolini's Italy is published by Bodley Head, while Thomas Wyatt, The Heart's Forest is published by Faber. We'll be reporting on the Wolfson History Prize in our June issue, which goes on sale in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, you can still get hold of our May edition, where we have articles on Second World War misconceptions, the Dambusters raid, Roman gladiators, royal clothing, King John, and the legacy of Margaret Thatcher. Our May issue is available in all good news agents and digitally. And as I mentioned earlier, you can find more information on our digital editions at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we may well read out some of your messages in future episodes. You can also contact us on Twitter, we're at History Extra, and on facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next time, we'll be back in Bristol discussing King John's battles with the barons and speaking to a survivor of the Holocaust. It's an episode that you won't want to miss. The History Extra podcast is produced in Bristol by Jack Fletcher. 